Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Seth Lipsky. Seth is the founding editor of the New York Sun and the Forward Newspapers. He also helped found two others, the Asian Wall Street Journal and the Wall Street Journal Europe, and is a former member of the editorial board and foreign editor of the Wall Street Journal as, as well, among other postings. Seth has published several books, including The Citizen's Constitution and The Rise of Abraham Kahan. His latest book, which is the subject of our conversation today, is titled The Floating Kilogram. Seth, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Seth, what is the backstory behind the title, The Floating Kilogram? So it's a wonderful backstory. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, it's based on a, an editorial that appeared in the New York Times about the discovery several years ago uh, about a discovery about the kilogram. The kilogram is the last metric weight and measure which is still a physical man-made object. It's a, it's a cylinder of uh, platinum and iridium uh, that is kept under, it's about the size of a golf ball, it's kept under in, a, in an under three glass domes, each secured by a separate lock and key in an underground vault at the International uh, 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 Institute for Weights and Measures in France. And it's been there for something like 130 years. And when they opened it, they discovered that the kilogram had been losing mass, which just through the scientific uh, world uh, into um, a complete uh, panic, and they've been scrambling for years to figure out what to do this. And the Sun wrote an editorial uh, uh, called "The Floating Kilogram," uh, saying, "Why not let the kilogram float the way we float the dollar?" Uh, so, uh, why do you actually have to know what a kilogram is worth? Uh, if you go to the butcher and you ask for a kilogram of hamburger, why does it matter how much hamburger you get as long as you get a kilogram's worth? And the point about that, that editorial caused a sensation. And uh, uh, one, one organization printed tens of thousands of copies of it. And uh, uh, that's where the title comes from. Uh, and that's the flaw to our fiat money. Why, why, does, why, why should we care what a dollar's worth? Uh, why, it doesn't make sense to me that we should be indifferent to what a dollar is worth. But that is the logic of the current system of fiat money. So that's where the title comes from. Well, it seems to me that that sort of logic fits in very well with a uh, morally relativistic society, which says that there's no good or no evil, no right or wrong, etc., I agree with that completely, and there is at bottom here a moral question. You know, when when you uh, give somebody gold in return for a piece of paper uh, in a receipt that is supposed to be exchangeable uh, for the to get your gold back, and you can only get part of your gold back after several years, there's a moral question at that. And if you set up a relative system, uh, it uh, begins to erode everything, a point that is very well understood in another book on this topic by uh, Steve uh, Forbes, 
so I agree with you completely. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Constitution gives Congress the power to coin money in the same sentence where it sets the gives Congress the power to fix fix the standard standard of weights and measures. I mean, they are the same moral issue there. Seth, why is sound money in general and the gold standard in particular, which are the primary subjects of your book, in your view, live and vital issues today? The Congress of the United States is uh, waking up to the possibility that the reason our current economic difficulties have lasted so long may uh, be attributed to fiat money. That is, the fact that we are in an age when the dollar has no intrinsic value. Uh, It is no longer linked to gold or silver the way the founders of America uh, expected it to be linked and uh, legislated it to be linked. Instead, in 1971, uh, when the Bretton Woods monetary system uh, was uh, brought to an end, uh, we entered the age of fiat money, and I think people are waking up to the fact that it's not working and may in, in fact be the cause that, uh, for the reason that uh, this uh, great recession uh, developed, which should have lasted a short time, uh, swallowed an entire presidency. What is the constitutional definition of money, and what was the system that existed prior to the Federal Reserve? So the uh, Constitution uses the word dollars twice. It doesn't define it, just uses that word. And the fact that it doesn't define it uh, suggests that the founders assumed that everyone knew what a dollar was. And in fact, the record is clear what they meant by a dollar. They meant 371 and a quarter grains of silver, the same as was in a coin then in use called the Spanish mill dollar. And we know that uh, partly because that's how the uh, the uh, Congress uh, defined it uh, under the Articles of the Confederation and also because in 1792 when they wrote the first coinage act, that's exactly how they defined it. And they also said it could be the equivalent amount of gold. And uh, there was a long debate uh, over the next century within America over whether, in fact, gold or silver was the uh, better species with which to um, make the dollar. And in uh, 1896, uh, this came to a head in a famous election when McKinley ran against William Jennings Bryan. Um, William Jennings Bryan campaigned uh, on the slogan, I will not be uh, crucified uh, on a cross of gold, or words to that effect. And uh, McKinley ran on the gold standard, and he won decisively, and Congress passed the Gold Standard Act of 1900. And uh, that uh, defined the dollar as, um, in terms of gold. And that's how it lasted uh, under various uh, uh, iterations until... um, uh, the Bretton Woods system set up after World War II collapsed in 
1971, and we entered the age of fiat money. And this is starting to worry Congress. And so it's starting to look at this. And what this book is, is a record of that debate in the first uh, 15 years of the 21st century that sets the stage for the great reform movement now underway. And you make the case throughout the floating kilogram very passionately that the collapse of the dollar relative to gold is a failure of Congress and a dereliction of Congress's duty under the Constitution. So explain that a little bit and then explain why you have hope that our Congress, which has been derelict in so many different areas and ceded its powers away to various bureaucracies, and maybe you could call the Federal Reserve a bureaucracy akin to the EPA or uh, any of the other uh, agencies of government. Explain why you have faith that Congress is awaking and will do something about this vital issue. That's a great question. So Congress... Uh, was given its powers in Article One, Section Eight of the con- of the Constitution, which says Congress shall have the power. And one of those powers is to coin money, rig and regulate its value, uh, to coin money and regulate the value thereof and of foreign coin. And just for the record, the rest of that sentence is and fix the standard of weights and measures. So this power was given to Congress. And through most of our existence, Congress, in fact, uh, exercised that power, or simply by leaving the gold standard act in place, uh, you know, uh, let, let the power that previous Congresses exercised exist. Uh, but in 1913, it, it delegated much of that power uh, to uh, a central bank, the, the Federal Reserve, and that's become uh, very controversial. The the Federal Reserve Act never would have passed without an amendment that said, not, or without a clause uh, uh, that said, this clause was introduced in Congress when the act was failing, it said nothing in the act shall be construed as, uh, as uh, ending gold convertibility of the dollar. Um, and when Congress was prepared to add that language, the Federal Reserve Act was passed. Um, so it just happens that our current troubles are coinciding with the 100th anniversary of the Federal Reserve. And Congress has never sat down in that entire 100 years and actually reviewed what the devil uh was going on, how the Federal Reserve was performing, did it do a good job, strategically was it the right move. So there began in, in Congress, uh, in the Joint Economic Committee headed by Kevin Brady, a Texas uh, congressman, a congressman from Texas, uh, uh, work on a, on a bill called the Centennial Monetary Commission Act, which would take a systematic uh, look at how the Federal Reserve is working and whether uh, it's set up right for the second century. It's not the only act in Congress. Another very important one is called Audit the Fed, which was a Ron Paul project uh, that uh, would uh, 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 
uh, authorize the Congress to uh, do an ongoing audit of the Fed, not only to see whether its books are in order, because the Fed in that traditional sense is already audited uh, every year like any other bank, but also look at how monetary policy is uh, created and uh, what its relationships with are, are with foreign banks. And that bill uh, actually twice passed the House, uh, the most recent time, by 333 to 92. That was less than a year ago in September. In other words, this is a hot situation. 109 Democrats joined the Republican, uh, the Republican majority in the House to pass that. And it's now in the Senate where it's, going, it's getting a uh, serious look. And... Uh, <clears throat> You know, uh, Janet Yellen, the uh, chair of the Fed, uh, uh, was before Congress and made known her objections to this bill, as uh, uh, Chairman Bernanke had made known before. But uh, uh, the Fed has to be uh, focused on the fact that when this passed the House, it was by this overwhelming majority. Uh, there are other there are other bills. Uh, there's a bill. Uh, Called uh, uh, you know the uh, the uh, to 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 set up a a free uh, exchange of, uh, of of currencies uh, where we would adopt uh, a system where anybody could issue money and the ones that issued good money would prosper and the ones that issued bad money would not prosper and it would no longer be a monopoly of the federal government. And uh, it would do away with the legal tender laws. That's a very radical uh, uh, bill, but that's in there. And there's uh, Kevin Brady's Sound Dollar Act, which would which would set up rules uh, uh, for the uh, Federal Reserve to follow, and it would introduce some reference to gold, but not make it purely a gold standard. And there are half a dozen other bills. So a lot. I would say what's happening in Congress right now is that it's fermenting on this issue. It senses that something is wrong, that fiat money is not working, uh, and it's fermenting on this issue. Um, and uh, I think it's going to, you know, come to something. I don't yet know what. Uh, but uh, one thing you should note that is that in the 200. 2012 uh, Republican primary when Ron Paul was running against uh, uh, Romney and the others. Uh, Paul and Gingrich really nursed this gold uh, standard question and this monetary reform. And it actually ended up in the Republican platform of 2012 that we would establish some kind of national monetary commission to take a serious bipartisan look at this. Then Romney made a terrible mistake. He did not run on this. So uh, I personally think that's one of the reasons that he uh, lost the election. He didn't see the horsepower of this issue. And just to put that in perspective for you, from 1947, when the Bretton Woods system really got operating, to 1971, when the dollar was convertible into gold at thirty at a thirty fifth of an ounce, unemployment in America averaged four point seven percent. 
then we got rid of the um, of the Bretton Woods system. We defaulted on it. Um, we went to fiat money, and in the years from 1971 to today, unemployment has averaged significantly above six percent. Uh, low unemployment, gold standard. High unemployment, fiat money. Uh, but it's not just unemployment. The bankruptcy rate, which Elizabeth Warren likes to focus on, uh, was, uh, you know, one point something per thousand for years. And suddenly it shot up. When did it do that? The mid-1970s when we went off the gold standard and moved to the age of fiat money. And you've no doubt read about this economist, uh, Thomas Piketty, who uh, likes to uh, warn of the inequality rate. It was trending gently downward for years, and suddenly it began to shoot up. That was the mid-1970s uh, when we abandoned the gold standard and, and went to uh, a system of fiat money. So there are a lot of reasons to start uh, looking uh, at this and to see whether the absence of the sound dollar is the root cause of our system of growing inequality and high unemployment and a lack of jobs and a high bankruptcy rate, uh, and to see whether something can be uh, reformed so as to bring us back to a... Um, I think there's definitely a lot of political merit and economic soundness, obviously, behind the argument about inequality that, as you mentioned, and as I wrote about, actually, when it came to Piketty, citing the New York Sun and your article about it, how inequality has spiked and it's correlated, inequality of outcomes have spiked, and it's correlated with us effectively severing any ties to gold in 1971. Another argument one could make is that every American cares about the fact that the dollar in their pocket is worth less and less every single year, and you can't earn any return on savings at this point, largely as a result, one could argue, of the Fed. Playing devil's advocate, though, some on the other side might say that sound money would be bad for debtors, and millions of Americans have high amounts of debt personally. So what would be your argument to those people who would say that debtors, including the American people, forget about the government for a second, but debtors among Americans will be hurt by restoring a gold standard? So it's probably going to be unlikely that we would require persons who recently took on debt to repay that debt at a 35th of an ounce of gold per dollar. Uh, but it is not an attack on debtors to stabilize the dollar going forward and make it convertible into gold going forward. Uh, it is a huge tax on savers to allow inflation on a continuing basis, and it's actually astonishing that there are those who uh, want 2% inflation as a matter of policy. I mean, if you extend that out, that wipes out people in two generations. It's really quite remarkable. Um, so 
um, I don't think it's a threat to debtors uh, if one simply stabilizes money and makes it convertible into gold going forward. And in fact, if it is true that it creates a climate where one can return to full employment, it's probably better for debtors than inflation. In the floating kilogram, you frequently cite, and I really like this, and I think our listeners will like it as well, You, when you quote dollars and gold, you always quote dollars in terms of how many ounces of gold they can buy. And we see in your essays that you chronicle that as Fed policies get more and more extreme, the dollar buys you fewer and fewer ounces of gold. Now, in the last couple of years, that has shifted. People talk about the dollar, quote unquote, strengthening, however weak that argument may be. How would you respond to those who say that if people like you and I who believe in gold as money uh, are right, that gold isn't worth $3,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 today, that in fact, the dollar will only buy you or will buy you one twelve hundredth of gold, let's say today, instead of one eighteen hundredth of gold like it did a couple of years ago. So it's true. I don't like to talk about the price of gold. I like to talk about the value of the dollar. The dollar has uh, sunk in value to a thousandth of an ounce of gold from a 265th, say. And it is true that value has been flowing back into the dollar. The dollar is uh, more valuable today than it was uh, a year or two ago. That's fine. Here is what the Sun's view is. There are three circumstances when it makes sense to move to a system of sound money. One is when the currency is collapsing. Two is when it's steady. And three is when it's appreciating. What one really wants to do is make it convertible in a reliable way to a specified amount of money, and that will create a confidence that buoys the entire economy. So I'm not uh, worried one way or another about specific price changes. What I want is a system where the dollar is defined in legal terms as a set amount of gold, and I think that will calm the whole American economy and, in fact, the world economy and give us a basis for returning to normalcy. I think another very strong argument that you make, and I will quote here from one of your essays uh, that is in The Floating Kilogram, quote, fundamental in our view is the fact that the idea of a group of officials of the Fed deciding rates by fiat without targeting the constitutional definition of our money is coming to be seen as itself the most important part of the problem, unquote. Speak a little bit to the notion of central planning of the money supply and control of interest rates by a a group of supposed wise men. Jim Grant, who we've interviewed before, calls it the the PhD standard. Talk a little bit about the inherent sort of Soviet um, ideology that goes behind a board that centrally plans the money supply and with it ultimately controls the prices of everything in our economy in effect. So I I like Jim Grant's phrase, uh, he calls it the PhD standard. It's a kind of conceit that that any group of men and women uh, sitting in a room uh, by virtue of uh, their, you know, learned uh, uh, doctorates uh, can outguess the market as to what is the correct interest rate. And the 
it contrasts sharply with the gold standard where uh, the injunction is merely for the U.S. government to uh, redeem the dollar and make it convertible into a set amount of gold. And that um, that uh, sets a policy guideline that uh, one doesn't need a Ph.D. to follow. Uh, you know, there are a lot of incredibly distinguished people who believe this, uh, starting with George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and working your way up through to, you know, Andrew Jackson and uh, uh, McKinley and uh, Grover Cleveland and uh, Woodrow Wilson and uh, Calvin Coolidge and uh, FDR and, and Dwight Eisenhower and John Kennedy. Uh, so, you know, it's not as if, if this is a flaky, untested idea. And uh, the, one of the beautiful things about the gold standard is it puts large countries and small countries on the same footing, a point that was made uh, in a famous press conference in 1965 by the president of France, Charles de Gaulle, who gathered a thousand journalists in a room and uh, called for uh, a true gold standard, and uh, uh, it really uh, was the last great clarion call for uh, a gold standard. Uh, but America was plunging in uh, in the wrong direction at that point. Uh, so the phrase Sovietish, uh, one of the features of the age of fiat money is that it makes it very easy for the government to run the kind of deficits it needs to run to fund these big left-wing government programs. And so the uh, Fed is now holding trillions of dollars of government debt, uh, and you're in this bizarre position where the government central bank is, uh, is buying up the debt that the government has issued to fund these a vast, uh, vast expansion of government. Uh, so there's nothing uh, innately, you know, communist uh, about a central bank, except that the way it's run under a fiat system enables the vast expansion of government uh, with just a few strokes of a computer keyboard. And uh, so one virtue of a reform movement to restore a sound dollar based on constitutional specie is that it would put a break on that uh, on that system. You also write about the mandate of the Fed of, you spoke about one, ensuring 2% inflation ad infinitum. Another mandate of the Fed, the, its other mandate, is full employment. And you write at length about the folly of that mandate. Explain that to our listeners. That's a great question. So in, in 1978, uh, Congress passed a bill called Humphrey Hawkins, which uh, added a second mandate to the Fed. Uh, the f traditional one was stable prices, and to that it added full employment. You know, people say they don't want the Fed today says we we're against anything that politicizes monetary policy, but that was the big politicization of monetary policy. And I think if you check the record, uh, un unemployment uh, was 6.3 percent at the time Humphrey Hawkins was passed, 
And through most of the Obama presidency, it's been way above a 6.3 percent. Uh, Humphrey Hawkins is a failure of a policy, uh, and even the liberals understood that at the time it was passed. The New York Times called it a cruel hoax, cruel hoax in quotes, uh, on the American uh, worker. Uh, you know, it, it just uh, was internally illogical, and it was a politically expedient uh, dodge of uh, the kinds of policies that would have been required to create uh, full employment, uh, which are low taxes, low regulation, pro-economic growth, uh, uh, free trade. Uh, those are the things that create jobs. And uh, so one of the things that's happening in Congress is uh, people are looking at whether it's time to acknowledge the failure of Humphrey Hawkins and repeal it. Now, these are big laws, and they're going to take a long time to reform, and it's going to be a bitter fight. But we have re undertaken major reforms in the past, and, and uh, you know, it's, I'm hopeful that it will come up in the 2016 campaign. Uh, and in the um, current Congress, it's already the subject of hearings, all these kinds of questions. Uh, another strong argument that you make that I think would be news to a lot of Americans if they heard it but makes intuitive sense is you say that, in effect, America has been in default since the George W. Bush presidency years. Explain that. So, um, you know, I wrote an editorial, this book contains it, uh, called What Would a Default Look Like? And, you know, I said, uh, you know, it would look like uh, high unemployment, uh, 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 you know, uh, w wars in the middle, the Middle East aflame, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And when you thought about it, uh, it looks like the world today, uh, um, you know, low, you know, uh, high jobless rate, uh, People not investing in the domestic economy, uh, massive, uh, massive uh, accretions of offshore cash uh, in corporations. Uh, uh, that's what a default would look like. Uh, um, uh, the dollar plunging, uh, the value of the dollar plunging. Uh, uh, you know, we still, when George Bush was uh, inaugurated, it was a 265th of an ounce of gold, and um, at its nadir, it was. Uh, less than an 1800th of an ounce of gold. That would have been unheard of to the founders of the United States. It would have been unheard of to the authors of the Gold Standard Act of 1900 uh, when it was a 20.67th of an ounce of gold. Um, and uh, so I, I call that a default. We've defaulted. The dollar is not worth a 90, you know, it's, it's lost 97% of its value since the Fed was created. I call that a default. Um, you know, we just didn't keep our promises that were made by the Congress, uh, and um, you know, we didn't keep our promises that were made under uh, Bretton Woods, and uh, and the kind of uh, 
travail that our country has gone through these last eight years is what it what it looks like, and it's it's not a pretty picture. In the floating kilogram, there are lots of very entertaining and enlightening anecdotes from history, stories. One that I found particularly interesting dealt with a gold clause in a lease agreement from the early 1900s and whether or not that clause could be enforced in a court today. Do you have any one or two uh, individual stories that you particularly like and would like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, I, I enjoy the... the, the, um, the uh, the uh, this story behind the the silver bullet. There's an editorial in here called the Silver Bullet, which is uh, about the price of gasoline uh, on which uh, uh, President Obama, you know, uh, uh, dressed in one of his uh, you know uh, weekend radio broadcasts. Uh, he said, you know. Now, whenever gas prices shoot up like clockwork, you see politicians racing to the cameras, waving three-point plans for $2 gas. You see people trying to grab headlines or score a few points. The truth is there's no silver bullet that can bring down gas prices. At the time, gas prices, gasoline in, in actuality was falling in value if you priced it in silver the price of gasoline was dropping. It wasn't the gas that was going up. It was the value of the dollar that was going down. So uh, I, I like to try to get that uh, across. Uh, one of the things this book tries to do is get that, uh, get that, uh, get that across. And uh, it makes a lot of uh, difference in ordinary people's uh, lives. And uh, so uh, that's a kind of... Uh, Kind of thing I I like to look at. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about the um, about the Bitcoin, and I love the story in this in this book uh, uh, from the uh, essay called "God and Bitcoins," and it goes like this: One of our favorite uh, jokes is about the group of scientists who figure out the secret to life, a way to make a human being from nothing but dirt. When they've worked it all out, they're so excited they go directly to God to announce their discovery that he is no longer necessary. He appears a bit surprised, but they offer to demonstrate. God nods. One of the scientists bends down and scoops up a fistful of dirt. Oh no, God exclaims, you've got to make your own dirt. And that's how uh, the New York Sun feels about Bitcoins, it, you can't get around the fact that at the end of the day, it's really the gold that is the money, and all the rest of it is just currency. So, uh, you know, these kinds of anecdotes uh, are, are, are uh, run throughout this book. It's a very, very lively book. It's not for, uh, you know, for... Uh, PhDs. This is a book for uh, everyone who spends money, and and I think uh, people are starting to uh, uh, wake up to the fact that there is a problem with our money. Uh, the chairman of the House uh, Financial Services Committee, which oversees the Federal Reserve, is a congressman from Texas called Jeb Henserling, and he was in New York the other 
week, and he told this wonderful story where he was in a 7-Eleven in Texas, and he was buying a quart of milk, and he went from the refrigerated case for the quart of milk to the cashier, and he puts the milk down on the counter, and when he is told how much it is, he kind of raises an eyebrow, at which point the cashier uh, goes into a long tirade against Janet Yellen, and, and what Congressman Hensling said to the people he was meeting with in New York, he says, when I'm being lectured on Janet Yellen by the cashier in the 7-Eleven, you know things are beginning to ferment here on this issue. And uh, that, uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the book, and I think it's a lot of fun. The name of the book is The Floating Kilogram. I highly recommend it for anyone who cares about the economic strength and financial strength of the country and our future as a, as a free nation. And the author with whom we've been speaking is Seth Lipsky. Seth, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks a lot, Ben. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.